Please turn with me today to James chapter 3. We're going to go now into the next chapter. We made it through chapter 2 a lot quicker than we made it through chapter 1. We're going to go now into the, the next portion of James in this letter that he writes to the church there in, in Jerusalem, these Jews that are a part of his church. As he continues discussing with them and sharing with them this idea that, that faith works, that the things that, that God has done in our lives for all of eternity have temporal outworkings. And here, in James chapter 3, we find what arguably is the most exhaustive teaching on speech and the tongue. And so we're going to spend the next couple of weeks really diving into this passage and seeing what it has to show us and and see how important these things really are to us in our walk with God as we live these things out. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity, the tongue is set so among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Lord, we ask you now that over the next little bit you would meet with us and you would speak to us through your word. God, as we approach something like this in James chapter 3, we, we have to be honest and say that this is something that at some point in our lives, probably over and over and over again, we all struggle with. We all struggle with our speech. We all struggle with our, the way we express things, with showing love towards others. From the youngest into the oldest of us it is an ongoing battle. And we thank you for so practically teaching us these things through your word. We thank you for so patiently working with us time after time after time to help us to be shaped in the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we take a look at these things, would you challenge our hearts today? There is one who is here who hears these things and is wrestling with how do you even gain such control over this because they don't know you as Savior, Lord. May they see that without that relationship, it is not possible. May you draw them to yourself. For Christians here today, Lord, would you help us to see that what comes out of our mouths reflects what's going on in our hearts. 
And would you help us to really honestly evaluate our speech, our communication, and would you help us to be able to uh, communicate with one another in a way that is loving and kind, but above all else, shows Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. In our culture today, and especially over the last few years, um, there's been a, a fascination a really wide fascination with this idea of, of superheroes. You know, maybe you've seen the movies and the different you know, T-shirts and things that, that are going around. There's something about the ability to fend off bodily harm, fly, or possess some otherworldly ability while saving others that, that's attractive, right? It's been a long thing, a longstanding thing even in our culture and in our, in, our, in our country. You know, my own children... They love to don pretend capes and race through the house saving people. Often it ends up with a hole in the wall. Or they fight off would-be attackers invading our domain. And I have to tell you a story that that when Caleb was two years old, he received from his his grandmother, my mom, a a superhero costume. And after he wore it for about ten minutes, he came back to my mom very brokenhearted. And he declared to her, Nana... This suit is broken. And she began to ask him, well, what is wrong with it? He said, I can't fly. (laughs) And listen, if for 10 bucks at Walmart, we could all fly. I'm on board. Fictional superheroes possess powers beyond the limits of natural human capacity. That's why they're super. However... We all have something that resides in each one of us which possesses a power greater than we often realize. That which resides in us can do incredible good and exalt the glory of God, but it can just as easily be used for evil and incite violence and sin. So I want to spend the next couple of weeks looking at what I call the pint-sized power of the tongue. That though it is small, it can do great and terrible things. But before we begin, we have to just kind of set the groundwork here and understand that speech is something that's very important to God. God puts a high value on words. If you open your Bible, and we're not going to go there this morning, but if you open your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, what do you see that God used to create things? He used his words. He spoke things into existence. It is through his words that he not only created all things, but he gave to man his purpose and communicated his eternal truth to be recorded for us today. Does it ever amaze you that an infinite, almighty, holy God communicates with you and me in a way that we can understand? That he has given us the gift of speech and he has spoken to us through that? God not just puts a premium on words, God puts a premium on his words. Now let's look at the other side. On the other side is Satan, who is opposed to all that is good and is God-given. And from the very beginning, Satan attacked speech. In Genesis chapter 3, when Satan appears in the Garden of Eden to tempt Eve, from the very beginning, he abuses God's gift of speech, because what does he do from the very beginning? He lies. 
He twists the words of God, seeking to entice God's creation to follow him. And since the fall of man, the tongue has been an instrument of sin that has been wielded time and again against God and God's creation in service to the father of lies. And if you look throughout the scripture, the tongue is described in many ways. I just want to give you, really, this is just a portion of the way the tongue is described. The tongue is described throughout scripture as wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. And that is not an exhaustive list. It's not a pleasant list, is it? If you want to keep with the superhero analogy for a second, that sounds like a supervillain we have residing inside of us. But does this list surprise anyone? We live in a fallen, sinful world. So that even the mightiest of the gifts of God has been corrupted and twisted by our sin. And God, in his word, warns time and again of the dangers of an uncontrolled tongue. For just as God puts a premium on his words, he also has expectations of our words. And in James chapter 1, James already taught at the very end of the chapter that the tongue reveals the heart. What you and I say, what you and I communicate with others in our speech, in our text, in any, any way that we communicate in that, those, using those words, we communicate what's going on inside of us, in our heart, in our soul. The Greek philosopher Socrates once said very picturesquely, Speak, friend, that I may see thee. And there's a lot of truth in that. How one talks reveals what's going on. And when it comes to practical Christian living, and that's what James is consumed with, right? Faith works. Our speech is a battleground. The words we say, the things that we type, the tones that we employ, and and all these other pieces that go into that, they all indicate either a heart given to the Lord and submitted to him or not. So let's dig into James's exhaustive teaching in this chapter and ask the Lord to examine and convict our own hearts by examining and convicting us in how we use this gift of speech. And what you see here is that because of the tongue's immense power, we must submit our speech to God that we may honor him consistently with it. You and I have to recognize there is great power in our tongues. There is great power in our words. We live in a culture, I understand, we live in a culture where talk is cheap, right? The words are produced over and over and over. I mean, goodness sakes, we live in a culture where every time I have a thought, I'm expected to put it on social media so everybody can read it, right? And sometimes we give in to that, right here, right? But talk isn't cheap. Words do communicate something. And God has expectations on that. If we're not careful, it gets away from us, right? We, 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 give it, we give in to our sinful passions, and we do wrong things. And so let's look today at the first couple 
sections here as James talks about this power that resides within us. And what James first talks about is the power of teaching God's counsel. James 3, verse 1, my brethren, and again, when you see this, James is switching topics here. He's continuing on and and, and imploring them. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. What James is showing us here, there's a special attention for the teachers of God's word. He has a special warning to them. What you find here in the Greek, the word teachers, is is the word didaskali. And this word was used often to describe, in the New Testament, rabbis, or those who who functioned in a teaching role. That word didaskali is used 58 times in the New Testament. 31 of those times, it it was Jesus was being addressed by that title, And eight of those times, Jesus was referring to himself by this title. And so Jesus, 39 out of the 58 times, it's referring to Jesus, the teacher, in that role. Those who teach use the gift of the tongue. And teaching, even in a spiritual setting, can be viewed as a means to exalt one's self. It certainly was that way for the Pharisees. We read in Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 7, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feast, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with longing to be a teacher of the things of God. Indeed, that is a high privilege. Of course, Jesus is referring here to these who have taken that to another level and begin to use it for their own empowerment and their own purposes. We must understand there is a great level of responsibility that comes with this opportunity to teach the things of God. If you went to the Jewish synagogues back in this time, it was often allowed that men who had things that they, they wished to teach to others from the scriptures would be allowed to stand up and teach there within the synagogue. Jesus and Paul both took advantage of these opportunities in the synagogues. They would go in and they would teach the truth of God. And so perhaps, as James writes in this Jewish context, perhaps there was a similar situation that had evolved within the church. And we saw earlier in the, in the letter of James, in James chapter 2, that he had talked used that word, for synagogue to get talking about their gathering together in their Jewish context. But James warns that not many of them should become teachers of God's word without counting the cost of what that meant. When it comes to teaching the word of God, utmost care and concern must be given to that teaching. Because God's word is God's message to us. It is not to be used to further an agenda or to propagate one's own self-interest. It is to be handled rightly. And all believers must be consumed with living out the word of God, but especially those who have the opportunity and the privilege to teach others the things of God. Understand that it takes great effort to teach the word of God rightly. 2 Timothy 2.15 Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, 
a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, or the idea there is cutting straight the word of truth. Speaking the things of God carries great weight because God is the sovereign. God is the one who, 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 who rightly declares how things are to be. So how we handle God's word will have great implications on others' lives. If we mishandle God's word and we make it say what it does not say, you know what James says? We incur God's judgment on ourselves. There are those who have undertaken the teaching of God's word for the wrong reasons. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul had encountered such ones in his ministry. Thoughts of fame, a personal quest for authority, or a desire for exaltation lead some into the ministry, quote-unquote, of God's word. Understand that those who teach God's word have a high standard to live up to. James uses this word here, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. There is a stricter judgment for the one who teaches God's word to someone else. Because God does not take the mishandling of his word lightly. And our world and our history has been replete with false teachers of the things of God. And those who use the word of God for their own ends will find themselves under great judgment from God. Because God does not take, again, the mishandling and misusing of his word lightly. Because the words of God are important to God. And we see this stricter judgment or this idea of the stricter judgment that James is talking about here. We, we, we are responsible to God for how we instruct others in his word. So we must not be careless in how we approach the word of God. In a church context, in a church setting, let's take our local church. You know where that begins? It begins with the pastor. That the pastor of a church, so here in Beaverton Baptist Church, that would be me, right? That, that is my job to instruct you in the ways of God and say only the things that God says in his word. Teaching the word of God certainly goes beyond a mere reading of the text. If we just, all we did was just read the text, right? That, I understand that that means you'd get to the cafeteria a little sooner on Sundays, okay? But teaching is an expounding on the text to help us understand what it means for our everyday lives. So in that expounding, which we call exposition of the text, we must only say that which is true to God's word. A sermon on a Sunday morning is not a cute little three-point three points that, that the pastor has been whittling on and wants to make sure everybody gets hammered into their heads. A message on a Sunday morning should be the Word of God. When we open the Word of God, that's what we come to hear. To do otherwise is a blasphemy to the text. And God will hold false teachers accountable one day for their actions. And so if, as you have opportunity to teach God's Word to others, you too take on this level of greater accountability. And again, within the local church context, perhaps that's teaching a children's Sunday school class or, or an adult Sunday school class. Maybe that's teaching a, a children's church or being an Awana leader, leading a Bible study, sharing the gospel with others. These ministries of the church are not roles to be taken lightly. They are a vital part of God's plan and they require our incredible attention. That whenever we open the word of God, we want to make sure that 
that we're understanding what God is saying and communicating that effectively to others. So it doesn't work very well if five minutes before that thing that we open the Bible and say, I hope we can figure this out before we go. But we give right attention to what God's word says. But just because you aren't in what we may call an official teaching position of a local church doesn't mean that you don't have a calling to this role to teach the word of God. If you're a parent, your engagement as a parent with your kids is part of teaching the word of God. I, this week, someone in the church sent me a picture of, of them doing family devotions. They're reading from the book of John this week. And it just does my heart so good to see those things, that, that families engaging in the word of God. That's a huge responsibility to take on, to understand, hey, I gotta, we need to teach the things of God to our kids. Anytime you instruct someone else on what the Bible says, you're becoming a teacher. You might do that from, from yes, from the individual, local family, but you might do that to the guy who shares the cubicle with you at work who knows you're, you're a Christian. To the neighbor who's been interacting with your family for years. To, to, the, to the, ball, the teammate on the ball team. That you have the opportunity to share with them the things of God. And, and so by all means, become a teacher of the word of God. Jesus says in Matthew to go and make disciples. The definition of the word disciple is a learner. So if someone's going to be a learner, guess what they have to have? They have to have a, a teacher. Someone has to teach them the things of God. But let us do so carefully with great attention given to how we teach the things of God and how then we live them out in our own lives. The word of God that is given carelessly can and has done great damage. And let's just be honest. Are we going to get it right every time? Have you ever had the opportunity, maybe, maybe not even in the context of teaching the Word of God, but maybe you, you've had an opportunity to teach something and, and you say something not the way you meant to say it, right? All the parents of teens nod their heads and say, yes, and, that's, and they haven't let me forget, right? And sometimes we let that fear paralyze us. What if I say something wrong? It's going to happen. You know, sometimes you've heard a verse your whole life and thought you knew what it meant, and so you just teach it, and then you begin to study that a little more, and you go, that's not, that doesn't mean what I thought it meant. What do you do? What do you do? You go back and say to someone, hey, I was wrong. And the Lord, when I studied this out this week, the Lord helped me understand this and showed me what this meant. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Nothing wrong with going back and saying to people, hey, I, when I said this, this, this is wrong. This is not what this means. And the more I've time put into it, the more I've understood it. And sometimes when we teach others, when we instruct others and we disciple others, we, we're also paralyzed by this. Well, what if they ask a question and we don't know the answer to it? There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, hey, why don't we study that together? Or, hey, if you give me a minute, some time, I'll, I'll, I'll begin to work on that and I'll find, I'll find out the answers. Nothing wrong with that. It's better to work together studying the scriptures to find the right answer, the, the, the godly answer, than to make one up on the spot. Making it right and cutting it straight is vital 
to the power of teaching God's counsel. Because there is no power. There is very little power. I have this on my, all my thoughts got mixed up, all right? I have this on my, in my office. If you come to my office, as I leave my office every, every time, there's a little sign above my door. And it says this. There is little power in the preacher's word. But there is great power in God's word. Because that's the truth. You and I, we can come up with little things to say and here and there and help us to remember, and that's, that's well and good. But remember, the word of God is what's quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so let us handle that rightly. Because if we do not, we face the judgment of God. And with this sobering thought in place, James presses forward with the power of the tongue and the importance that it plays in our practical faith. He says that within the tongue we find next the power to control. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. James says that the control of the tongue is a sign of, the ult- of ultimate maturity. I think in verse 2, James gives us what might may be the most painfully obvious understatement of the century. He says in verse 2, we all stumble in many things. That word stumble refers to sinning or transgressing. We as sinners are all prone to all types of sin. How often do you lie, in your life do you feel the susceptibility of yourself to sin? I feel it every day. I resonate a time after time after time with the words of the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. This frail human flesh loves the paths of sin that are worn over and over and over again, even though it has a new master. And even in a believer's life, that struggle exists. In one of the most practical looks of the Christian walk, Paul said this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you cannot do the things that you wish. We struggle every day to do what is right. And if we rely on God's help and strength, we can win that battle in Him. The pattern of a believer should be that he is consistently living for the Lord, relying on his strength. And here it is that James illustrates the power of the tongue to control our lives. Because in verse 2, he states that as one is able to avoid sinning with his tongue, he has reached really what could be called the pinnacle of Christian maturity. Because indeed, if the tongue can be mastered, the whole body would follow. James says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. That word perfect means complete or mature. And why is it that the tongue is such a difficult thing? Well, the tongue is what I might call an equal opportunity offender in our lives. You know, there are some sins that you and I may not commit in our lives because we've never been placed in that point and had that opportunity. I, in my life, don't have a lot of friends who rob banks. 
okay? I've never been around people to rob banks. And so probably, unless I just decide I'm going to go out and do it, you know, I don't have anyone in my life who's going to influence me in that way. So there may be some things in our lives that we just don't ever have the opportunity to do. We've never been placed in that position. But the tongue is not so. The gift of the tongue and of communication allows us to easily broadcast all types of sin. And if we're honest, we would all admit that we've given in more to our sinful speech and communication more than we care to admit. Just think with me for a minute. How many times have you said something that you instantly regret it? How many times have you said something and thought afterwards it just slipped out? Or how many times have you been caught up in a tirade of speech, knowing full well in your mind that what you were doing was wrong, but you felt helpless to stop it. You been there? And so we usually fall into the sin. As one author said, because the tongue is in a wet place, it can easily slip. Control of the tongue would reveal a perfect, or as we said, complete and mature believer. It is so easy to sin with our tongue that, it, that to see it controlled is a sign of Christian growth in the Lord. It is possible to see victory in this area. We are called to be Christ-like, to practice living faith. Just consider that for just a minute. We're called to be like Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do for over 30 years? He walked on this earth. And over those years, throughout those three, three and a half years of his ministry, how many people verbally assaulted him? Jesus said hard things, but he never once sinned in his speech. So with his help, it is possible then to control our speech. It is possible for you to walk in God's power and see great victory won. But in order to do that, we have to understand the power of the tongue to control. You and I have to be willing to admit that this little part of us exercises great control over our whole lives. You must be readily to admit that it sets the tone of so much of your life. And James now illustrates this control, showing the tongue as the seat of power. He starts in verse 3. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. These two pictures here that James talks about shows us the enormous power that the tongue has in our own lives. First is this bit in the mouth of the horse. Horses have incredible strength and power. They can accomplish so much more than a human. Just a few weeks ago, our family had a, a great opportunity to go on a Friday afternoon and enjoy the snow fest down in Frankenmuth. We met Don and Sue down there and had a wonderful time um, just looking at that. For a bunch of kids from the south, that was amazing. Okay, I had never seen a block of snow so big in my life. And while we were there... We were treated to a wonderful experience with the minders. We took a carriage ride around Frankenmuth. And we had a carriage, and there were seven of us 
piled into this carriage and a driver on top and it had a horse in the front. It was, it was a one horsepower, okay? And we took a 15-minute carriage ride around town. And at one point, as we, as we came out of kind of the main street and we began to turn in there in Frankenmuth, it kind of goes uphill a little bit. As we began to go uphill, it was amazing. That horse began to work harder. To, it almost, we actually kind of picked up some speed going uphill with that horse. That horse is extremely powerful to be able to pull four adults, five adults, and our three kids that were in there with us. I know I couldn't do that. Not to mention all the weight of the carriage. But yet, a horse like that can be very easily controlled once broken and trained to respond to the bit. The bit goes in the mouth of the horse and it sits on top of the tongue. And that one small bit controls the entire body of that horse. That experienced driver who was in that, on that carriage with us, he used the reins that were attached to that bit to tell that horse what he wanted it to do. If you saw the size of that bit compared to the size and strength of that horse, you would be amazed. But without it, there's no what? There's no control. Secondly, James points us to the sea to observe the ships. He says, look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. If you can imagine just being there in Israel with James, pointing out at the sea, saying, look out there and see the ships. Look out there and see these these boats going to and fro, back and forth, driven by the winds, great vessels ferrying cargo and passengers. Of course, you don't have to go very far. You can go down the road here to Bay City and see the boats coming in and out. Yet in comparison to the size of the ship, that which gives it its direction, the rudder, is small. It is that little rudder, though, that gives the pilot complete control of that vessel. He, James says, not the winds, determine where that ship will go. He is in command. And all because of that little piece of wood or metal that's properly placed in the back of the ship. That gives him the power. That gives him the control. And if it's not used correctly, a ship is out of control. Just ask all of those boats trying to get to the Suez Canal a few months ago when that one guy double parked, right? There is great control found there, but it has to be used. And James says the tongue is just like these. In verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. It is small in size, but all the power it wields. It is, as James says, a little member, but it has big things to say. He uses the word boast. The idea behind the word boast there, it means it arrogantly brags large things. The scale of the things that your tongue can do is massive. It can, it can direct entire courses of life to accomplish great things. 
And probably all of us in this room can recall people who have said encouraging things. And some of us have lived on those for weeks on end, sometimes years. You remember what someone said to you and how it was used in your life. We can also use our, we can use our tongues to teach the things of God, to exalt him to others. These things, they encourage the hearts of those who hear them and challenge them to a greater growth in God. Again, probably many of us in this room can recall people who have instructed us in the things of God. From Sunday school teachers when we were little, to our parents, to other people, friends that God has used, and things they have said, they have used their speech to invest in our lives, to magnify the things of God. And God has multiplied those things over and over and over again. But by the same token, we can cause others to set off on paths of incredible destruction. Our tongues can so quickly invite trouble into our lives. And if we give way to the sins of speech, the problems of our lives can multiply exponentially. How many times have you found yourself in trouble because of something you said? Or the way you said it, right? Or that you didn't say. And we have no doubt, sometimes even had our entire lives and worlds turned upside down by what we said or someone said to us. We have surely seen the hurt that was brought on others because we did not seek God's help to maintain control of our tongues. An uncontrolled ship or an unbroken horse poses a great danger because a horse can very easily overpower a human and do great damage. I had a friend of mine in college whose dad, when she was little, was killed in an accident with a horse that had kicked him in the head. It could do, something like that is out of control, can do great damage. Our tongue, or the bit and the rudder, they work. Think about that. The bit and the rudder. Okay, so the bit in the mouth of the horse or the rudder on the rear of the ship, they work against contrary forces to give control. That bit works against the natural instincts of that horse to run free and do its own thing. That rudder works against the contrary forces of the currents and the winds to give control of the ship to the pilot. But in the hands of an experienced horseman, in the hands of an experienced pilot, the horse and the ship are controlled easily. Our tongues are so easily influenced by our sinful flesh. We need to hand the control over to God. It is only through God's strength, it is only through God's grace, it is only through God's power that we can find true control against the contrary nature of our flesh. And if our tongues are being controlled through dependence on God, there is real control. The tongue has power to control, and God has power to control our tongues. So we must recognize in our own lives that what we say and what we express exercises great control over what we do and who we are, or how we reflect or don't reflect the glory of God. 
And it's only in him that we find this power. Because of the tongue's immense power, we must submit our speech to God that we may honor him consistently with it. If you really stop and think about it, there is so little in our lives that we actually control. The weather reminds me of that every day. The traffic, I know that's not a big word around Beaverton, okay? But trust me, where I'm from, it's a big thing, okay? Global politics. And you know, let's be honest, just the mundane, run-of-the-mill, everyday things that happen in our lives, how many of those things are literally out of our control, right? Sometimes these everyday things seem out of our grasp to conform to what we want to happen. And if left unchecked, our tongue will act the same way. Our sin will hand the reins of our life over to our tongue and away we go in a way that doesn't please and honor the Lord. Because what's going to be coming out of us is those things that, that we're allowing. Our sin, we're, giving, we're not following God. This is not to say that it is out of our control. Indeed, we give it that control and we submit it to our sinful impulses. But as James says, all throughout James chapter 2, Living faith is different. With God's help, we can bridle our tongues and subsequently live lives of incredible usefulness to God. Your tongue can be used to spread the gospel, to disciple others, and to multiply the glory of God upon the earth over and over and over again. But that controlled tongue is only found in the life of a redeemed believer. It is through God that we, may, we gain mastery over this power. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it will show through your speech. And you will find no true, lasting victory apart from him. Sure, you could say the right things for the right amount of time and try to put up a front for the right people, but eventually it'll come out. It always does. And if you've been given an opportunity to teach others in the ways of the Lord Do it with utmost care. Take this responsibility on with all seriousness and attention to the things of God. We are accountable for the things that we teach about him. So let us speak God's word of truth. God has spoken to us through his word, and he has given us the incredible privilege to speak the word time and again to those in our lives. So very simply, if you look at your life, And the things that you say, do you see the controlling power of the tongue in your life? Do you recognize its power over you? Do you recognize that in and of yourself, you have no hope to control it, but that you need God? And very honestly, we must look at ourselves and see and ask, who is in control? Where are the reins? Where's the rudder going? Or have we allowed our sinful flesh to continue to to run that part of us? Living faith, as we said last week, is lived out faith. And lived out faith results in not being controlled by our sin in the way we speak, but submitting it to God. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of speech. We thank you that you, you have spoken to us. Time after time after time, you said throughout scripture to your prophets, you gave them your message and they said time after time after time, thus says the Lord. Lord, what a privilege it is to serve you. And we ask that you would help us to take the opportunities we have to teach the word of God to others with utmost concern and care. Lord, help us to approach it with the gravity that it deserves. Lord, may we teach it joyfully, knowing that there is joy in serving Jesus. But Lord, may it color the way that we approach those things. Lord, we ask that you would examine our hearts today. That you would help us to see the great control our speech exercises over our lives. And Lord, how we, if we don't follow you, we don't submit our speech to you, may we see how quickly it hurts not only ourselves, but others around us. And how it controls things that we encounter every day. Lord, would you convict us to continue to submit ourselves to you in this matter, to give control over to you and see our speech turned into a a vehicle for the glory of God. We ask the meditations of our hearts acceptable in thy sight and that that the songs that we sing speech that we give would follow those things. We ask that you would watch over and protect us as we go home, as we go to lunch, and we ask that you would bring us back safely tonight to worship you again. We honor you and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.